becoming a Zen priest, acting in 140 films, and, well, Peter will describe it his own way. Wednesday, October 14th, at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way in Berkeley. There's wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit. Gaetano Kazuo Maida will host. Advance tickets, brownpapertickets.com, and our beloved indie bookshops. Full info on kpfa.org. For October 14th, Peter Coyote. Behind me is the wonderful sound uh, created by Kevin Vance for this show. My name is Raina Cowan. This is Covered Cover Open Book, Frame to Frame, where we look at issues having to do with film for the next half hour. And if the sound did anything to say where we're going in this direction, today we're going to talk about sound design. Uh, I'm talking to Jim Lebrecht, who is a Bay Area I have to say artist, but uh, he he has a company called Berkeley Sound Artists. And uh, I would say in multiple, multiple different documentaries I've gone to see in the past few years, the sound design is by Jim Lebrecht, including Finding the Gold Within, The Mind Game, Plastic Man. Uh, we interviewed William Farley last month, who is the director, along with Janice Plotkin, the producer, uh, A New Color. Uh, some things you might also recognize him for, Most Dangerous Man in America, the Daniel Ellsberg film, and The Devil and Daniel Johnson. Welcome to KPFA. Oh, thanks. I'm really glad to be here. You know, I've wanted you to come here for years because, um, you know, being an audio person primarily, or, you know, first I was an audio person before I became a visual person. And I've always been interested in how film uses or doesn't use sound and music. And uh, I would imagine that uh, maybe you're an audio person, too. I mean, you started in the theater. Yeah. But but there's a sense of how to create music um, and sound and have something larger than life resonate. Well, I, I think that for a lot of people, they're visual. I think that directors and editors and producers tend to be visuals, but there are us people out there that are really, really tuned into sound. And I think that I was kind of at a young age, and I kind of liked sound. I couldn't wait to get my first radio to listen to when I was a kid. My dad had a hi-fi in the in the uh, basement, and I could climb inside and see all the tubes glowing. And and I wound up just finding this outlet, artistic outlet, that was doing sound for theater initially and then moving into film. Um, and well before, really kind of at the beginnings of when people started thinking about sound as a, as a design element. Whereas in reality, even Elizabethan theater, they had their thunder runs up in the ceilings of the theaters where they take a bowling ball and roll it along and create thunder. But I, uh, I, I think that you, you know, you find that there are people like myself who just really feel like we understand it and that we have a good grasp on audio in regards to the function of sound and the emotion of sound. 
and that typically if you understand those things, gee, I need a sense of foreboding here and I need a single that the bad guy's showing up, that I have ideas about how to make that happen, be it theater or be it film. So first, why don't we start with what's the difference between doing it for theater and for film? There must be a different kind. I I want something different when I'm going to the theater than when I'm watching a film, although I don't think I've actually been able to say what that is. But there's something about it being live that I want the sounds to be different somehow. Well, I started my professional career at Berkeley Repertory Theater. I was their sound designer from 1978 to 89. And the thing that was most challenging first off is that yes indeed it's live and so the quality of the audio you're doing really needs to be up to par with the actors voices and there's no hiss tape hiss or pops or glitches with their voices and so being able to kind of create and lay in and play sound with really high quality so it felt really seamless and just part of uh part of the moment and not oh my gosh here's another sound effect um and we've been doing surround sound for, like I mentioned with the Thunder Runs, but this is something that we've been doing in theater for a very, very long time. And um, the Berkeley Rep, especially the Thrust stage, where I really did most of my work, is a great place because there's places to put speakers all over the place, and you can really envelop an audience in uh, an environment. So um, working in theater, the, the process... Uh, is um, maybe just a little bit different than film. There, It's very kind of collaborative. You need to work with the set designer, make sure you can get your speakers set on the stage and uh, and such. And we tend to talk things over very, very long periods of time. And when I first started working at film over at the Salzans Film Center, I, I kind of at the age of 33 was a, an apprentice again. <laughs> and, um, and I just noticed how it, it's... People tended not to talk quite as much about it, but you got your tasks of things you needed to do from your sound supervisor, and you kind of went away and worked on that. So for me, it took a number of years before I was kind of making artistic decisions again. But now I'm at the point in which we are talking a lot more. There's And there's really this understanding nowadays in independent films and documentaries that you don't simply talk to your sound designer or supervisor once you've locked your picture and ready to, oh, yeah, we should do a sound mix, but that you talk about it before you start shooting or you talk about it uh, while you're still very much in the editing room because we do have that perspective that not everyone is very facile with to say, you know, if you give me a few moments here, I remember this from working in the theater, that, you know, some Shakespearean play, and the actor immediately, the door's open, he comes downstairs, immediately starts talking. And I said, you're not giving us enough time to hear the environment. Hmm. You know, but if, if the actor comes downstage, pauses, looks around, and then begins, then we can set that location of this cold night or this big open field. But if they merely start talking, it's it's hard for us to do our job. So do you think that's really what you do is you set a location, like a an emotional and a physical location in the mind of somebody who's watching a film or seeing the theater? There's a couple of things I do, I have to do. I want to make it seamless for an audience to hear a film. I don't want them to ever think about the sound. It just simply feels like that's, of course, that's what we're supposed to be um listening to or hearing. I, I don't want people to 
go out singing the sound design at the end of the film. Um, but I'm also really responsible for thinking about the overall sound of a film. Um, because projects can kind of be cold and icy and metal cold. They can be warm and fuzzy. And those, all of those things that kind of inform the discussion or how we mix things or what kind of sounds we use. Um, uh, one thing that I do before I start, the first thing that we do once we've settled on budget and schedule is we'll sit down and do a spotting session with a, a director, filmmaker, and and we'll sit down with my staff, the dialogue editor and the sound effects editor and such, and I'll ask them, so why did you make this film? And often I get a really good answer about why this is important to them. Where did it come from? And that somehow informs the work that we do. I almost kind of <laughs> joke sometimes that I'm kind of doing holistic sound design, that I really try to get down to the human qualities of what we're trying to do here. It's not just, you know, a film about um, people who are going to the recycling center in, in West Oakland. I'm, we're working on a film called Dogtown Redemption right now. And... um and it's about the lives of these people. And it is about showing their lives and what they're trying to subsist with and what they're dealing with in their lives, as opposed to us just simply thinking about them as the shopping cart people or the people that are rummaging around and are recycling. And understanding the human value there um, is... And I'm really kind of touched by this film. We're going to start mixing next week. And I may be rambling here a little bit on you, <laughs> But, um, you know, these are the things that, that I think, I think about. It's, uh, it's not all just technical, whether we have the DBs just right and everything EQ'd right, but it's this emotional response. Well, when I think about Hollywood films, you know, they're known for letting you know what you're supposed to be feeling. And I would say that that's not what you're doing. I mean, although you're doing something holistic and, uh, but it sort of was a, a bad role model. In a way, yeah. So, how did you kind of come up with how how to shape and craft something in a way that didn't make it over the top, where it's about inviting someone in rather than telling them what they should be doing? Well, there's a fine line between sound design and music and music composition, and indeed, uh, often people say, "Well, the music was telling me how I'm supposed to feel." And my feeling is, I want to kind of know how our character is feeling and what they're going through, not telling me that I should be scared or I should be sad. Um, I, I think that you, I mean, that's a, you know, it's a really good question. I think that we worry about whether we're telegraphing something ahead of time. And, um, and it, to an extent, part of it is just kind of a feel. I mean, I know that different scenes are going to feel like claustrophobic or lonely. And so there's ways to do that. In fact, I'm working on this film called The Nine, and uh, the director is Katie Grannon. And it's this really inc kind of incredible documentary look at this really down-and-out part of Modesto. And we were we spotted the film yesterday, and we're just kind of talking about how do we say things with sound design. And some of it is in the sounds we choose. Are there sirens in the background? Are there sound like their dogs or babies crying in the next room? And some of it is how you mix a film. 
Whereas sometimes things may feel very, very lush at the beginning. I'm hearing birds all around me and wind and, and cars going by very clearly. But as we get into a scene, we start losing some of those sounds. And when we come down to maybe somebody sitting in a hotel room with a very dull and quiet um, uh, room tone behind them, that becomes very lonely. I mean, if I stop for a second, that's very lonely. And in fact, one of the people we worked with yesterday rather astutely said, well, maybe part of the sound design of this moment is doing nothing. Mm. And indeed, silence is one of those things that can be used so well. It's not how much you can pile on. It's kind of like, you know, what you do with it and how you present it and how it comes in and how it goes away. So that there are many different elements that are kind of getting put together. There's the picture. There's what's um, whatever the interview is showing. There's the physical location of what you're seeing. And then you're adding sound to it. So how do you know whether you're not adding too much? You know, how do you get the right balance? Well, there's, you know, there's that. That, you know, oh my God, you added sounds to this documentary. Isn't that cheating? And it's, well, no, not really, because there's a point of view here. I mean, somebody edited this film together. They chose what to put in and what not to put in. And certainly some films are extremely verite and, um, really, you know, really feel like I'm only seeing what was shot here. And indeed, part of the art or craft of sound design is if you need something that you make it sound like it was really at that moment. Um, when you're on location shooting a documentary, you're lucky if you're getting the picture, let alone getting really good sound. And occasionally you either lose something that we need to put in, like uh, the ambience around there, or it's simply your mic is not, is really picking up the, the character's voices, which you want. But we can see that it's a drabby neighborhood or a scary neighborhood, or we can see that this is a poor part of town, and we can help um add sounds to that environment that the microphone didn't pick up, but if you were there, you would likely hear. So when I'm dealing with a down-and-out neighborhood, again, I might hear some dogs off in the distance. We try not to do things like sirens and gunshots because that is over-the-top and, you know, rather stereotypical. But there's other things that feel uncomfortable. You know, hearing a garbage truck picking something up from a block away isn't necessarily a bad or a good sound, but it's an annoying sound. It's a sound that feels like you're subjected to the outside world. So we kind of play with that stuff a little bit. Uh, I worked on this wonderful short uh, documentary, Barber uh, from the Barber of from Birmingham. Hope I didn't mangle it. Um, and it was about this gentleman, Mr. Armstrong, who had been uh, active in the civil rights movement in Birmingham. And here he was, he was going to, as an older man in the 80s, he was going to be voting for Obama. But it, we had a shot here that kind of, we could see outside the kind of the grimy windows of his barbershop at the gas station across the street. And so one of the things I did is I put a sound of a German shepherd barking. You know, there's that kind of stereotypical of the junkyard dog or the gas station dog that may be around. And um, and I put it in there just to kind of add that flavor. But also then it hearkened, somehow it made a connection to the footage of um, the um, the protesters being hosed and attacked with um, German shepherds by the police back in Birmingham. So... I know some of the stuff is a little bit more esoteric than other things, but you kind of think about these through lines. So in that case, it seems like that there is something both kind of, I don't know, concrete and poetic at the same moment. 
That's the goal, I bet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you want to fill in what might be missing that would be good for the audience to hear, to get a better sense of a neighborhood. And it's, uh, um, but also then there are thoughtful things about, you know, what are we trying to say about this area? What are we trying to say about a location of what's going on? Um, I, to the point of my saying when I asked people about why did they make this film, I worked on a short film a number of years ago, and the filmmaker, she said, well, I think the world's a dangerous place. And it was a film about these two girls in a park that, you know, find a, a body there. But somehow, you know, just her telling me that increases my understanding of the world is a dangerous place. And so, you know, you think about those things. We're speaking with Jim Lebrecht, who is a Bay Area-based sound designer and uh, runs Berkeley Sound Artists, which is at the Fantasy Film Building. Now, uh, it's interesting because you must have your own point of view, and the director has their own point of view. So how do you kind of figure out... Um, I mean, they are hiring you for something, but at the same time, um, they have their own vision. So I don't know if that there was like... The same scene, let's say that um, that scene in the gas station, mm -hmm. um, and there were six different directors. Whether you would come up with six different sound designs, like, uh, likely you could or or would. Uh -huh. I mean, my job, and I, I make sure that people know that you know my job is to get your audio or your oral vision into this film. You've hired me because I'm experienced. I'm going to give you my opinion about what we should do or give you ideas. But in the long run, it's your film. And and so, and indeed, you're right. You know, um, different people would play different scenes in, in other ways. But I'll bring ideas to them. We'll talk about stuff. And um, I have disagreements on occasion. And I'll make my point. But, you know, in the long run, it's about... Um, them being happy when they they leave and getting a good product. Some of the, t the things that are really kind of um, subjective are really really difficult. Like we have footage that's kind of like a memory. Let's see. Well, how do we say memory? And it seems to me that well, one of the old ways of kind of doing this is you put some reverb on it, and we're kind of hearing it echoing off the halls of time. Um, but yet that doesn't work for everybody. And some people say, well, why do they sound like they're in the other room? And then you kind of throw that out. And you say, well, let's try to figure this this out. And sometimes it's just simply maybe finding older sounds. As a, um, it's Sometimes it's very difficult to get there. With this film, The Nine, there's a lot of things that are kind of subjective. And we have ideas about how we want things to feel. But it's not going to be really... Um, it, there's kind of some reveries that go on, and how do we say that? So um, some of this is really discovery. For me, sometimes I just throw things up onto my Pro Tools workstation, I start playing it and mixing some stuff in. And I may not know what the right thing is, but I usually know what's wrong. Mm. And so I can put, you know, some traffic in the distance up and say, well, that's pretty good. That kind of says that there's an outside world, but there's too much kind of rumble in there. It feels dirty, and it's messing around with the music. And so I'll say, okay, well, maybe I can filter out some of the low end and make room for the music. But that is a interesting process to go in where if you're not quite sure, you just start somewhere and get a sense of what may not be working. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because as somebody who's used to go out a lot to get radio sound, uh, there would always be these background noises that would be so irritating. And, you know, we'd bring them back and have the engineer try to get rid of them. Um, inherently, when we got rid of the sounds that were annoying, the sound that were left was much flatter. You know, uh, it was it was missing something. But we did radio. I don't think we thought at the time about how to um, fortify it and turn it into something. So, But it seems like that's what you do all the time. I mean, I notice every once in a while, like I think, oh, wait, there's that street noise. I bet... I bet that wasn't very clean, and that you took it and transformed it into something else. Um, you, you know, the, the, sometimes there'll be things in there like the line of um, a refrigerator, and maybe you know it's the fan, but there's also maybe a bearing that's going out, and there's a little bit of a line in there. Or often on some sets, there's 5K instruments, and they're putting out a specific ring that I can hear. And if we filter that out, just notch it out, it makes everything feel much more transparent. There is a point at which you try to clear out things so much you do start losing a bit of definition. Um, but sometimes it's necessary to pull, like I think what you're referring to, pull it out of the production sound or the dialogue and then maybe add some some of that back in, but that you can control. Another, and, and that kind of works, you know, fairly fairly well at times. So when you're doing a scene, like how long does it usually take to take? Um uh, all the raw materials and put them together. It really kind of depends. The more elements that I'm dealing with, it takes. It's going to be longer to mix. So if we have score or source music playing, um, if there's lots of sound effects and fully, fully being kind of more human sounds, like you know somebody picking something up off the table or kind of playing around with it, um, or um, other background sounds. It, it takes much longer to kind of go through that stuff. You kind of set yourself up with the dialogue. So dialogue is kind of our prime target there. And if there's music, I usually then kind of try to place and mix the music properly. And then at that point, then I hear everything else that I have to work with and kind of find their right places. Um, you know, even in, in documentaries, this stuff is really important. Um, uh, to me, Foley um, is... Um, it brings us usually brings us closer to the characters. If I'm actually hearing their footsteps, even though we added it in, well, they did have footsteps that did make noise. Um, or if they're sitting there kind of fidgeting across the room, but maybe you're zoomed in a little bit, so the microphone didn't pick up fidgeting with a piece of paper. But if we add that sound in, somehow it makes you feel like you're really kind of getting much closer to them. So, 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 so the answer is that I I don't know how long oh. it takes. Sometimes, sometimes that you know a two minute scene can take all day to mix. Yeah, and other times we can get through ten minutes of a mix in an hour. Um, but that's after the dialogue editorial has gone on, the sound effects editorial has gone on, and we've usually done a little bit of pre mixing before I sit down with the director for the final mix. And have you started doing this after it was all done on computer, or did you ever do? mixes before um when i started at the salzans film center um it was kind of just as digital audio was coming in but i i worked on for a couple of years on mags sprocketed mag stock where i was splicing units and, and such we had 
big crews back then and hallways full of units and such. And nowadays it's, here's your hard drive, here's your show. And, you know, what might have taken maybe 20 people to do is, is cut in half or even in my shop is kind of small. So we may have five or six people that have worked on something. Um, but, um, you know, obviously wonderful soundtrack was done in pre digital age. And if you look at films like Apocalypse Now, you know, it's just, it's such a touchstone for us. Um, you know, in case people are kind of thinking about, gee, I'm not interested in the sound design stuff. Uh, I saw a film about a year ago called Hellion. And, um, you're going to have to forgive me if I don't remember everybody's name, but Pete Horner, who works up at Skywalker, was the sound designer on that. And, uh, I went to a screening and I realized that they had kind of put back in, it's a narrative, put back into the film the stuff we usually try to take out. Ah. So, and, and Pete had gone around with Kat, the director, and gone to all these different uh, locations uh, in the town where the film was shot in Texas, industrial town. And the roars and the sounds of the factories and different things and the hums of the wires. And they orchestrated like music. Um, this ambience that was put in there and you wouldn't know it. I don't think unless you had been kind of in the business and kind of know what we do to realize a how well it, it was, it was done and how brilliant that was. You know, I've got certain people whose work I just absolutely love and Pete's work is one of them. And you know, all the, all the folks that work on the Pixar films and Walter Merch and you know, all those folks. I'm, I'm so lucky to live in this town. Right, so when you go to a film, do you watch the film or do you listen to the film first? Like, how, how do you, <laughs> what do you do? Um, I'm always, I always have my ears open. I kind of listen a little bit. I kind of cock my head to the right a little bit to see what, maybe, or the left to kind of hear what's going on in the surrounds a little bit if I can't hear it. I try to get immersed in the film. Um, but occasionally, you know, if it's not going that well, I pay more attention to the audio. Um, but a really good film, I, I, I just don't do that. I'm just there, and I don't really get it. But, you know, the worse the film, the more I'm listening to what's going on in the soundtrack. <laughs> I see. So it's sort of like a regular film can pull you in if it, if it has the capacity to do that. Yeah. And if not, then you're you're focusing on the technical things as a way to kind of... Spend the time. <laughs> Sometimes. It's like I, I went to see, uh, when I was still in college in, in theater, uh, I went to see Cats, and I just didn't really like the play that much. I was looking at the at the lighting grid and stuff a lot during the film, or, or I slept for a little while also. But Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I see. So that's, that's how you're doing it. We're speaking to Jim Lebrecht, who's a Berkeley sound design artist for film, and he does have an, a book that's just coming out in its fourth edition entitled Sound and Music for the theater, the art and technique of design, which he did along with Dina Kay. Uh, so, you know, I'm so interested in the way that, um, it, to me, what you do it feels like poetry, which is maybe how I started, in terms of how you put things together. And I don't know if there's a way to describe that. I mean, if you were going to teach me how to be a sound designer, how would you teach me to pay attention to something like that? That's a wonderful question. I think that when I sit down with people that are relatively new with me, we, we look at a scene and say, so what's missing? What would you like to hear here? What, and then again, what is the emotion of what's going on here? And what is that, so what does that bring to mind? Um, and so just this way of kind of thinking about it, 
Um, you know, the, the composer's got his piccolos or she's got her bass drums and we have our thunder or we have our birds. We talk about things like that also. But, um, I often say that I can hear a show in my mind. And if I can hear it in my mind as I'm watching, I know I can do it. And somehow I can just lay that on top of it. Wow. Well, that seems like really important. Uh, well, it's it's great when it happens, and it's a little bit scary when it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're speaking with Jim Lebrecht, who's a Berkeley Sound artist. And uh, Berkeley Sound Artist is actually the name of his company, uh, Saul Zantz Film Center. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And I, if you could just list like three, three people that films that people should watch so that they can listen in a different way, what would it be? Well, I, I still kind of say go back to Apocalypse Now because it's really an incredible standard. Uh, I even think Toy Story, the first Toy Story, I just love to have all the sounds just seem just right. Um, and, um, you know, but that's a heck of a question. You know, there's films like Saving Private Ryan, which is just remarkable how you felt watching that film. Mm-hmm. But I certainly have a list of a hundred films I could probably recommend. Well, well, it's been great talking to you. Uh, Jim Lebrecht, Berkeley sound artist. My name is Randa Cowan. This has been Frame to Frame, Cover to Cover, Open Book. I'll be back next month for another edition Looking at Film. Thanks so much for listening. You are invited to the Concord Gem and Mineral and Jewelry Show Saturday and Sunday, August 29th and 30th. The show includes a wealth of gems, jewelry, and minerals on display and for sale. Over 22 dealers have some of the finest items available. Over 75 displays and demonstrations of rocks, minerals, and the lapidary arts, including fun and educational activities for kids and scouts. You can bring the kids and have a rocking good time at the Concord Gem and Mineral Show. Please join us at the Center Concord, 5298 Clayton Road, near the intersection with Ignacio Valley Road. Doors open 10 to 5, Saturday and Sunday. Free parking and handicap accessible throughout. This is a benefit for the Concord Costa Mineral and Gem Society. For more information, call 925-289-0454.